Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 63, The Nervous System. I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to look at the different components of the nervous system, including the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. We'll talk about the spinal, co- the spinal column, uh, the cerebral spinal fluid, and there'll be a particular focus on the brain, so we'll look at the anatomy of the brain, the different regions of the brain, including the, the forebrain and the, uh, the hindbrain, the brain stem. We'll talk about the different regions of the cortex and their structure and functions. Recommended pre-listening uh, for this episode is episode 38, Neurons and Synapses. Okay, so let's make a start. The nervous system is the part of an animal's body that coordinates voluntary and involuntary motions, activities, and transmits signals between different parts of the body to essentially coordinate actions and manage the different uh, organs of the body. The special type of cell that is sort of defined by the nervous system or defines nervous tissue is called a neuron or a nerve cell, it's also called, although as we'll see a bit later, that's a bit of a mis- misnomer. Most animal species have a, a two, two parts to the nervous system, a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system, also uh, abbreviated CNS and PNS, respect, respectively. Basically, the central nervous system consists of the brain and the spinal cord, and everything else is the peripheral nervous system. So, let's start by talking about the peripheral nervous system, and then we'll move on to talk about the central nervous system in some more detail. And the focus here will be on the human peripheral and central nervous systems, and, and later the human brain, although many of the basic principles that I'm going to discuss apply to other animals as well, particularly mammals and uh, primates in particular. Okay, so the peripheral nervous system. The peripheral nervous system includes uh, 31 pairs of spinal nerves, 12 pairs of cranial nerves, and also the various other uh, nerves and ganglia and associated sensory receptor organs located throughout the body. So let's explain what we mean by those terms. First of all, let's explain what a nerve is. You've probably heard about nerves before. Um, I don't mean when you're anxious. I mean nerves as in in the body. This is what I meant before when I said that the phrase nerve cell is a bit of a misnomer, because nerves aren't cells, nerves are actually enclosed bundles of axons in the peripheral nervous system. They're sort of like cables. Remember that an axon is a uh, protrusion of the cytoplasm of a neuron, a a, a nerve cell, so-called, which is used to transmit information from one neuron to another. Now, each individual axon is very small and narrow, usually, and in order to transmit signals from, diff- uh, from say, the brain to the, the end of the toe or to one's hands or wherever else, it's necessary to send more than a single axon. So you have a bunch of axons all uh, sort of bundled together. They're, they're all next to each other and surrounded by or insulation cells called, uh, called myelin, Schwann cells, and then surrounded again by layers of connective tissue called endonutrium. And so uh, this bundle of... Nu- axons surrounded by connective tissue is called a nerve. Nerves can either protrude from the spinal column or from the brain directly. The The nerves that protrude from the spinal column are called spinal nerves, and there are 31 pairs of those in, in, in humans, and there are 12 cranial nerves which uh, protrude directly from the base of the, uh, from the, from the brain, the base of the skull, basically. Now, these nerves connect up either the spinal column or the, or the brain, depending on whether they are spinal nerves or cranial nerves, they connect those to the various organs throughout the body, so our hands and our feet and our uh, digestion system and our heart and uh, the skin and all of the other different parts of the body that need to be innervated by, by nerves. The, these nerves carry signals to and from 
the, the parts of the body. So particularly uh, skeletal muscles are innervated by, by nerves. That means we can send signals through the nerves to the muscles in order to move, so to walk and to run and to whatever else. And also we get signals back from uh, muscles and skin uh, telling us when we feel pain or hot or cold or telling us uh, the relative positions of the different parts of our body. That's proprioception, uh, proprioception and uh, things like that. So, so those different types of nerves are called afferent neurons, or afferent fibers in this case, because we're talking about bundles of, of neurons, not just one, afferent and efferent. So afferent means it's carrying information from the periphery, say sensory receptors in the skin or mucous membranes or internal organs or from the eye or ear or wherever, into the brain. So that's afferent. It's bringing in, essentially. Efferent Yes, with an E, is the opposite. It carries signals out from the brain or, or through the spinal column out to the uh, our muscles or to innervate the visceral organs. So that's our uh, like digestive system and things like that. Right, so the peripheral nervous system includes both afferent and efferent neurons. It's sort of like a one-way one-way roads in a sense. That they're going. You've got two lots of one-way roads. Some some go out. That's the efferent, and some go in. That's the afferent neurons. And particular nerves will be specialized for particular purposes. So, for example, there's one nerve um, that's responsible for innervating the heart and causing it to, to speed up, and there's another one that innervates the heart to cause it to slow down. And so that there, um, you might think that there would only be one, but in fact there are two. One, one is sort of the accelerator, and one is like the brake, in a sense. And the, the, there are nerves for all different parts of the body and different organs and different muscles and so on. Now, as I said before, the cranial nerves leave the skull, uh, and so they project directly from the base of the brain. Uh, spinal cord nerves leave uh, the vertebra through openings in the bone. So you know how we have a spinal column, and then then there are um, w- with the different vertebrae, there are openings in the bone, and one of the reasons those are there is to allow the spinal nerves to project outwards, and therefore project to the different parts of the body that, uh, that they need to. Now, you remember that I said that the nervous system is divided up into two components. There's the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. Well, the peripheral nervous system is further subdivided into what are called the autonomic nervous system and the somatic nervous system. So I'll talk about each of those in turn. Uh, The somatic nervous system is associated with voluntary control of body movements, particularly uh, skeletal muscles. So, in particular, the somatic nervous system uh, includes afferent nerves, uh, traveling, br- bringing inf- sensory information to the brain, particularly about the location and, and stretch and so on of, of muscles and, and tendons, while efferent nerves from the brain, particularly from the motor cortex, uh, stimulate the uh, skeletal muscles to initiate contraction and therefore motion. So, whenever we engage in voluntary motion, moving, uh, that we can sort of choose to do voluntarily, that, that's mediated by the somatic nervous system. The second branch, if you like, of the peripheral nervous system is called the autonomic nervous system. And you can remember that because it's kind of like automatic. It happens automatically. You don't have conscious control, for the most part, over the autonomic nervous system. So it controls uh, bodily functions below the conscious level, including things like heart rate, uh, digestion, the rate of respiration, salivation, perspiration, uh, urination, sexual arousal, breathing, swallowing, all of the things like that. So whenever you do any of those activities, muscles need to contract, either smooth muscles for digestion or skeletal muscles for uh, for, for motion or um, changing the rate of, uh, of, the, of the beat of the heart or of um, the, the contraction of the diaphragm, say, for, for, for respiration. All of that requires innovation by nerves from the brain. So basically, the rate of action potentials will, will tell the organs how, how rapidly they will... Um, how how rapidly the, the muscles will contract or how strongly they will contract. 
So, so that's how the peripheral nervous system works, essentially. It just sends action potentials along the axons through the nerves, um, and the rate and, well, the rate of those at which those action potentials arrive at their destination essentially determines how frequently and intensely the muscles contract, thereby controlling the, the contraction of the muscles and hence the relevant motion of, of that part of the body or of the digestive system or whatever it be. So as I said, most autonomic nervous system functions are involuntary. However, they can sometimes work in conjunction with somatic nervous system uh, to provide voluntary control over over certain components. Um, so respiration would be an example of that. We can There's an involuntary component, but you can also change the rate of respiration if you want to. So this leads us to a final point about the peripheral nervous system, which uh, is which concerns the two separate subcomponents, if you like, of the autonomic nervous system, the, the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And this relates to what's commonly called the fight or flight response, which you probably have heard of before. So let me just set the stage a bit here. So remember, there's, there's a number of levels of categorization here, which can get a little bit confusing. So let me go over them. There's, the nervous system describes all nervous tissue and everything we're talking about in this podcast, basically. Within the nervous system, there are two most basic components. There's the peripheral nervous system, which are all of the nerves and also sensory organs uh, outside of basically all throughout the body except for the central nervous system. The central nervous system consists of the brain and the spinal column alone. That's it. That's all the central nervous system is. Peripheral nervous system is everything else. So there's that distinction between peripheral and central nervous system. Within that, uh, within the peripheral nervous system, so now just zoom into that part, there are two subcomponents to that. There's the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Somatic is responsible for basically voluntary muscle control. Autonomic is for automatic non-voluntary functions. Now, let's zoom in further to the autonomic nervous system. Within that, within the autonomic nervous system of the peripheral nervous system, there are two further subcomponents, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, let me explain the difference. Effectively, you can think of them as just being opposites of each other. They do sort of exactly the opposite thing. Basically, the the sympathetic uh, component of the uh, autonomic nervous system is responsible for what we might think think of as the uh, initiating the uh, fight or flight response, uh, so-called. Although I don't like that name very much because it's not very specific. So the sympathetic nervous system effectively initiates the fight or flight response um, by such actions as dilating the pupil, um, inhibiting the flow of saliva, accelerating heartbeat, dilating the the bronchi in, in the lungs. Uh, inhibiting digestion, various activities of digestion, inhibiting um, bladder contraction, and also causing the stimul sorry the secretion of uh, adrenaline, uh, the, the hormone. It's important to note that the nervous system and the endocrine system, which which is responsible for producing and secreting hormones, these two systems work closely together in controlling the um, behavior of the body and uh, the activity of the different organs and tissues. So one particularly close way that they work is is through the sympathetic nervous system, uh, because the uh, nervous activity activation of the sympathetic nervous system leads to secretion of adrenaline, which then further uh, is partly itself responsible for initiating um, the, the sympathetic nervous response. So so they they work closely together there. 
The, the flip side to the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system, which essentially, as I said before, just does the opposite of everything that the sympathetic nervous system does. It constricts the bronchi and the lungs, it slows the heartbeat, stimulates the flow of saliva, and stimulates um, peristalsis and, and secretion of, of bile and other enzymes for, for essentially stimulating digestion. So effectively, th- this is parasympathetic is associated with what's called rest and digest. Sympathetic is associated with fight or flight. So... Usually, sympathetic ne- the sympathetic nervous system is activated when there's some threat, uh, the animal feels threatened in some way, or there's a need for sort of vigorous action. In contrast, the autonomic nervous system is particularly activated when there's a need for feeding, or for uh, rest, or for se- secretion, or a- other sort of maintenance activities like that. That's the basic sort of really rough idea of, of what the two subsystems do. It's important to understand that it's not an either-or situation. It's not like the sympathetic nervous system is on, or the parasympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system is on. It's it's one or the other. That's that's not how it is. Both are essentially always active to to one degree or another. So it's a situation rather than sort of having two buttons where the one either the parasympathetic's on or the sympathetic's on. It's more like two dials where um, they can be turned up to various degrees and down to various degrees depending on the circumstance. And that is regulated by hormones, for example like adrenaline, for instance, that regulates how much each of these subsystems is activated in a given situation. Right, so that's enough on the peripheral nervous system. Let's move on now to talk about the central nervous system. The central nervous system is so named because it integrates information uh, and coordinates the different components of the body. So, so it takes information from all of the different sensory apparatuses of, of the body, um, brought to it through the peripheral nervous system. It integrates that, processes it, synthesizes it, and then it uses that information to coordinate and manage, essentially, the activities of all of the different parts of the body. So it sends out the, those efferent signals to then, to then control the rest of the body. So the central nervous system consists of the brain and the spinal cord. Let's start by talking about the spinal cord. Uh, the, the spinal cord is just a long, thin, tubular bundle of, of nervous tissue, sort of like axons, although they're not... Uh, sorry, sorry, sort of like nerves, so the nerves we talked about in the peripheral nervous system, although they're, they're not... They're not quite nerves because they're part of the central nervous system and nerves are sort of technically part of the peripheral nervous system, but, but it's kind of a similar idea, bundles of axons surrounded by connective tissue. And, uh, of course, the the spinal cord protrudes out of the uh, the bottom part of the brain. An interesting thing, which, which I didn't know until I was just doing the research for this podcast, actually, that in an adult, uh, the spinal cord only occupies the upper two-thirds of the vertebral column. So if you think of your spinal, um, of your spine, the the, the vertebra, the, the bones that are that, that comprise the spine, only the top two thirds of those, roughly, are actually uh, occupied by the the spinal cord. The the lower third does have nervous tissue in it. However, it's not part of the spinal cord. The spinal the spinal cord itself is uh, specifically refers to a sort of a long, straight, tubular, uh, particularly sort of rigid bundle of of nervous tissue and axons and support cells. Down from that, it protrudes a number of um, nerves, which which run down through the through the bottom third of the um, of the vertebra, and then out through the the rest of the body, and and joining up to the peripheral nervous system, or becoming the peripheral nervous system essentially. Um, but th- but correctly speaking, that bottom third of the of the vertebra is not part of the spinal cord per se, so that's not part of the central nervous system. Now, the spinal cord is protected by by uh, three layers of tissue. Um, called spinal meninges. They're, they're similar to the meninges we'll talk about in the in the surrounding the brain in a moment. And the, the names of these are the dura, the arachnoid, and the pia the layers are, are surrounding the... Uh, these are just layers of connective tissue which surround the spinal cord to protect it. 
between uh, between two of these layers, the, the sort of the second and the, and the third layer, so that between the bottom two layers is a, a, a sort of like a, a pocket, if you like, or a um, a region which contains cerebros- cerebrospinal fluid. And this is, well, it's just a fluid. It's mostly water, but it contains uh, electrolytes and other things. It, it has a number of purposes, which I'll discuss more in a moment. Um, but an interesting thing about this is that you may have heard of a medical procedure called a spinal tap, or more, more correctly, it's called a lumbar puncture. This involves the use of a needle to withdraw cerebral spinal fluid from the uh, subarachnoid space, so that's the, the space between these two layers where the cerebro, cerebrospinal fluid sits, usually from the lower region of the back, which is called the lumbar, so hence the, the lumbar puncture. And one reason you might do that, for example, is for, to diagnose various conditions which lead to a change in the composition of cerebrospinal fluid. It's very difficult to get access to cerebrospinal fluid, or much more difficult, to say, than getting access to blood, because it's only found in certain parts of the body, and you don't really want to inject the needle into your head, which would be a bad idea. So the uh, a lumbar puncture is essentially the easiest way to get access to cerebrospinal fluid. So uh, that's what that refers to if you've ever heard of a, a spinal tap before. Uh, now, cerebrospinal fluid isn't just found in the... In the um, layer surrounding the, the spinal cord, it's, it also surrounds the brain. Well, it, I should say it surrounds the brain and also is found inside the brain. So let, let me explain how that works. There is a system of sacs, essentially, you could call them, or ventricles, more correctly, called, uh, located in the middle of the brain called the ventricular system. Well, I said in the middle of the brain. Some of the ventricles are in the middle, others are sort of um, in other regions. But there, there are several ventricles which are all connected to each other, and they contain cerebrospinal fluid. These, these ventricles are located, as I said, in the brain. But the, the, cerebro, the cerebrospinal fluid is free to circulate between the ventricles and also through the subarachnoid space and surrounding the, 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 um, throughout the meninges that, that surround the brain as a whole. The, the, this cerebrospinal fluid serves a number of purposes. One is to serve as a means of transporting uh, nutrients to the uh, cells of the brain and, and the spinal cord and then transporting wastes away from them. So it serves a, a nutritive function. Um, it, it also ser- cerebrospinal fluid also serves to protect the central nervous system by offering uh, a cushioning support. In particular, what's actually quite interesting is that the brain the brain sits, as I said, it, it sits essentially in a pool of cerebrospinal fluid. It's surrounded by a membrane, or well, it, it's surrounded by membranes in between which is found a certain quantity of cerebrospinal fluid. So these are the meninges I was talking about before and the subarachnoid space where you have that cerebrospinal fluid. But this, the point is it completely surrounds the brain, except for the part where, of course, the, um, the spinal cord connects up to it. And effectively, the, because of the consistency of the brain itself, the, you know, the brain itself is made of nervous tissue, which is mostly water, and the cerebrospinal fluid also has some various enzymes and other things in it, so it's not completely water. The point is that the brain is actually has basically neutral buoyancy in the cerebrospinal fluid. What does that mean? Well, it means it doesn't, it neither floats nor sinks. So if you imagine putting the brain in a bath of cerebrospinal fluid, it wouldn't bob to the surface or sink to the bottom. It would just, it would just have neutral buoyancy. It would just sort of sit wherever you put it. Essentially what that means is that the, a a crude way of putting it is that the brain floats in a bath of cerebrospinal fluid. Which is kind of interesting if you think about it. Uh, One of the main purposes of this, as I mentioned before, is to protect the brain because if it gets knocked a bit to either side, as long as the knock isn't too hard, um, a large portion of that f- of, of that of that force or the energy can be cushioned by uh, the brain moving um, w- with respect to this fluid and just pushing the fluid out of the way. So it's it's a way of cushioning the brain and protecting it uh, from harm. 
Another important thing to know about the central nervous system is the existence of what's called the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier is re- refers to essentially this well barrier that prevents large molecules from or other substances from traveling from the blood system into the brain. The main mechanism behind this is essentially a high density of cells connected by tight junctions. Uh, well, that's literally what they're called, tight junctions, that essentially like uh, glue the cells together, uh, might be a good way of thinking about it, uh, right next to each other so that, they're sque- so that the, the cells uh, are squeezed right tight next to each other so that you can't fit any big molecules in between them. So normally what happens is that surrounding the capillaries, the, the small blood vessels elsewhere in the body, are what, what are called endothelial cells. They're just cells that are responsible for um, forming the boundary between, you know, two different organs or whatever. These endothelial cells surround the capillaries, but they're not tightly welded to each other in a sense. There are gaps between them, and so big molecules or other substances, for example, like bacteria or antibodies, uh, can pass between them. However, in the brain, this can't happen because these endothelial cells are stuck together by these tight junctions, and um, there are some other mechanisms as well. That, that do that, but effectively these uh, gaps between the endothelial cells are closed, and so only small molecules or particular uh, substances like, for example, glucose, which have um, special mechanisms to, for, to pass across the... are able to pass across. Um, everything else is prevented from, from travelling between the blood system or the, the cardiovascular system through to the uh, into the brain or the spinal column. There are a couple of areas of the brain that are not on the brain side of the blood-brain barrier, so they're not protected by this, but most of the brain in the spinal cord is. The main reason for this is, as I sort of indicated before, to protect the brain from bacterial infections, because bacteria are too large to, to pass across the blood-brain barrier, which means that infections of the brain are quite rare, and that's very fortunate because in, uh, bacterial infections of the brain would be a, not a very nice thing to have. The downside, of course, is that antibodies, the uh, components of the immune system that are largely responsible for dealing with infections when they do occur are also too large to pass across the blood-brain barrier, and uh, most antibiotics are also unable to pass across it. So it's difficult to administer drugs uh, that target the brain because many of them can't cross the blood-brain barrier. Okay, so that's enough about the peripheral and central nervous systems um, in general terms. I'm now going to talk about the brain specifically, again, focusing on the human brain. The brain is, of course, why we all care about the nervous system. It's not the peripheral nervous system that we're really interested in. It's the brain. That's where the, the interesting stuff really happens. The adult human brain weighs, on average, about a, at one and a half kilograms. So it's not actually very heavy. It's not very large either. It has a volume of um, about 1.1 to 1.3 thousand cubic centimeters, which, again, is not particularly large. You can easily fit it in the um, in two hands. The human brain only comprises about 2% of the entire, uh, of the body weight of an adult human, but it consumes 20% of the total uh, body's oxygen consumption and 25% of total body glucose utilization, which is just ridiculous. It, so it consumes a dramatically disproportionate amount of, of resources for, for this such a small component of the brain. And that's because the nervous tissue is ridiculously active and requires an enormous amount of energy to support that metabolic function. The human brain contains something on the order of 100 billion neurons. We, we don't really know exactly how many, but it's something like that. And perhaps as many as 100 trillion, or maybe even one quadrillion, which is 1,000 trillion, synapses, that is connections between the neurons, which is just a mind-boggling number. 
So obviously we can't specify all of the different structures in the brain since there are just so many. Here I'll just attempt to talk about some of the main ones to give an idea of the, the different structures and functions within the brain. One way of understanding the complexity of the human brain is to uh, think of it as comprised of three regions. The brain stem, the cerebellum, and the forebrain. And I'll talk about each of those. The, the brain stem is the most posterior part of the brain, which effectively means it's closest to our feet, for humans anyway. Um, and it, it's directly joined on to and continuous with the spinal cord, so there's no sort of clean break between the brain and the spinal cord, actually. It just sort of merges into it. Um, they're, they're directly connected to each other and continuous with each other. We usually think of, we usually describe the brain stem as a comprising of the main components being the medulla, or also called the medulla oblongata, uh, the pons, and the midbrain. These three different components are all responsible for slightly different functions, but they're also all kind of similar. They don't look like anything very p- particularly interesting. They're all just sort of extensions of the spinal cord. Um, the, the brain stem is responsible for functions including cardiovascular control uh, and respiratory control, control of pain sensitivity, alertness, and consciousness. So it's basically responsible for uh, sort of low-level regulatory functions, monitoring heart rate and um, respiration and other things like that. So uh, again, just to recap that, the, the spinal cord um, is again sort of a, a, a thin oblong cord that, that runs up and is directly continuous with continuous with the medulla, which is the posterior most part of the brainstem. That then connects up into the pons, which is sort of like a bit of a bulb. You'll see it as a sort of a bit of a sticking out bulb on the on the brainstem if you see a diagram of the brain. And just superior to that, so just above that, is the midbrain. And these three together form what we call the brain stem, and it's responsible for many of the um, sort of really basic, uh, evolutionarily very old uh, regulatory functions to do with alertness and breathing and uh, sleep and heart rate and things like that. Okay, so that was one of the three parts of the brain that I mentioned. The second of the three that I mentioned before was the cerebellum. This is uh, Cerebellum is Latin for little brain because that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like its kind of own little, uh, small version of the brain which sits which sits to the back of and near the bottom of the brain. So if you sort of touch the top back of your neck, just above the spinal, uh, just above the, the top of your spine, the cerebellum is, is kind of in that region there. It, it sits just behind, or it, it sits just behind the, the brainstem and below the, the rest of the brain. It is responsible mostly for motor control, fine motor control. So it's not responsible for initiating movement. It doesn't send that you know those main signals that move that uh, innovate the skeletal muscles. But it does contribute to coordination, precision, and accurate timing of motor control. So you think of it as being uh, responsible for fine motor control. It may also have some other roles in other cognitive functions, but the the most uh, well established function it serves is in fine motor control. So that's the second of the three brain regions. So we've discussed the brain stem and the cerebellum. Now the third brain region is called the, the forebrain. And it's the superior most region of the of the brain, so it sits on the top. And it's what most people think about when you think of the brain. You think of that sort of wrinkled, walnut-looking thing. Um, and that, that most of that is the forebrain. However, the, the forebrain doesn't just include those wrinkles on on the outside. That's actually the cortex. It also includes a number of what are called subcortical structures, which are underneath, inside, uh, in sort of in the middle of all that. 
which, which are very important as well. And so some of these are called the hippocampus and the basal ganglia and other things like that, which we'll talk about in a bit later. The, the forebrain is responsible for most of what we might call the interesting stuff. So sensory processing, volitional movement, uh, sensation, perception, memory, learning, language, all of these sorts of things um, are done in the, in the forebrain for the most part. So let's now talk in a bit more detail about the different regions and subcomponents of the forebrain because it's quite complicated and, and uh, intricately structured. It should be noted that these basic regions of the brain, the brainstem, the cerebellum, and the forebrain, are found in most uh, mammals, but the relative sizes of these different regions of the brain differ dramatically. So particularly the forebrain, or the cerebellum, which is sort of part of the forebrain, gets much, much larger as you move to more human-like animals, so say primates. So it's much larger in primates than it is in animals like cats, for example, and it's much larger in a cat than it is in a mouse, and, and so on. And indeed, mammals generally have much larger brains uh, than sort of evolutionarily older types of animals like uh, reptiles, for example. In fact, I, I believe reptiles don't even have a forebrain at all. They just have the, the hindbrain. Um, sorry, the, um, the brainstem. Uh, I may have said hind hindbrain and brainstem interchangeably. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're, they're kind of similar ideas, so uh, we, we didn't get into the distinctions here. So let's talk about the different regions of the forebrain, which for a hu which in the human is, is by far the most uh, prominent and uh, important part of the brain, important in terms of doing interesting things anyway. Of course, you, you can survive without your forebrain, uh, but you can't survive without your brainstem. If your brainstem is destroyed, you die because your um, heart and lungs and things won't work. You can survive without your forebrain, although it wouldn't be a very interesting life. This is someone who's brain dead, for example, um, but still alive, may well have their brain stem functioning correctly, but their forebrain or their, their higher cognitive functions are not working, and so they're effectively, you know, there's, uh, they're alive, but no one is home, so to speak. There's, there's nothing going on there. So there, there are two main uh, regions to the forebrain, or not exactly regions, because they're not spatially distinct so much. Um, the, the main reason that they're distinguished this way, as far as I understand, is because of the, of, of, uh, the way that they develop in terms of the, the different types of tissue differentiating from each other. But don't think of these as being sort of spatially separate as being region 1 or region 2 of the brain, because they're sort of mixed up together. But um, the, the two parts of the forebrain that I'm talking about uh, will be the diencephalon and the uh, tiliencephalon. Uh, the, the latter is also called the cerebrum, so I'll probably call that uh, call it that because it's a bit easier. So let's call let's talk about the diencephalon first. The diencephalon consists of a number of of components. The three main ones that I'm going to discuss are the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and the pituitary gland. And you may have heard of some of these before. Thalamus is Latin for chamber, and it kind of looks like a chamber. It's basically just a sort of an uh, roughly spherical sort of oval shape that's located near the center of the brain, sort of just just above the brain stem. It's sort of, it's like a ball sitting on top of the brain stem in a sense. Again, I'm simplifying here, but just to get the idea. It's a collection of nuclei. Uh, nuclei are the, that is the nuclei of a bunch of different neurons all, all bunched together. That's a nuclei. When, so when we say nuclei here, we're not talking about the nucleus of an atom, nor are we talking about the nucleus of a single cell. We're actually talking about a bunch of those, a bunch of those cell nuclei sitting around together. So it's a collection of nuclei that has a very diverse range of functions. The thalamus is very, very important. It does a whole lot of different things. Probably the simplest way of thinking about its function is that it's a relay center. It acts to um, send information between different subcortical regions uh, and also between those regions and the cerebral cortex, which we'll get to in a moment. In particular, every sensory system, with the exception of the olfactory system, uh, includes a thalamic nucleus that receives sensory signals and then sends them to primary uh, the primary the corresponding primary cortical area so apart from olfaction all of the other senses go through the thalamus first so it's sort of a relay station in a sense that is responsible for uh, mediating the exchange of information between brain regions 
It's also thought to play a role in regulating sleep and wakefulness. The hypothalamus, which just means under the thalamus, because that's where it is, is a, it's a much smaller region at the, at the base of the forebrain, um, which is very important, even though it's quite small. It, it's, again, comprised of a number of nuclei, each with its own distinct connections and, and um, particular purposes. But um, the, hypothal- the, the main purpose of the hypothalamus is it produces a, a number of hormones. So the hypothalamus can be thought of as uh, an important connection between the, ho- the uh, endocrine system and the nervous system. So it's, it's sometimes described as like a neuroendocrine tissue because it sort of does a bit of both. It's involved particularly in regulating sleep and wakefulness, eating and drinking behaviors, hormone releases, and other things. Um, the hypothalamus is also particularly important for controlling uh, the activity of the pituitary gland, which is the third component of the of the diencephalon that I'm discussing here. Um, the pituitary gland is an endocrine gland which uh, sort of sticks out the bottom of the hypothalamus. It's sort of like it's almost like it's stuck to it by a string. It's not quite like that, but it's it's sort of a strange sort of a strange design there. Uh, the pituitary gland secretes, secretes nine different hormones which regulate homeostasis. So homeostasis refers to maintaining the uh, stability of uh, internal conditions within the body, like pH and temperature and me- metabolism and things like that. So the pituitary gland has two main parts to it, the anterior and the posterior pituitary gland, and they each have slightly different functions and they control different hormones. Uh, we needn't get into the details of that. I'll talk more about that when I do an episode on the endocrine system. But, but, but the important thing to remember is that the hypothalamus and pituitary gland form a, a system which sort of links the nervous and endocrine systems together. So they're quite important. There are other parts to the diencephalon as well, apart from the thalamus, hypothalamus, and pituitary gland. Uh, for example, there's something called the epithalamus and the th- subthalamus, and there are others as well. Uh, but we won't go into those in too much detail because they're not as well uh, studied or as, as prominent. Let's now move on from the diencephalon to talk about the tilencephalon or the cerebrum. Now, the cerebrum uh, comprises pretty much all of the other components of the forebrain, which, remember, is one of the three regions of the brain that we're discussing, along with the brain stem and the cerebellum. So the cerebrum includes the uh, includes white matter, which I'll discuss in a moment, the, the hippocampus, the amygdala, the basal ganglia, rhinencephalon, and the cerebral cortex. And I'm going to discuss each of those each of those in turn. Uh, let's let's start by talking about the white matter, which is which is quite interesting. So white matter is so called because it is literally white, or it's sort of a pinky white. And the reason it is that color is because it's basically just fat, or mostly lipids. Um, the White matter is a very important component of the central nervous system because it consists mostly of glial cells and myelinated axons. So these are the support cells and and sort of insulation that surrounds the axons of neurons that helps conduct the the information uh, from one body of uh, neurons to another. Uh, You can think of white matter as being sort of the central nervous system version of the nerves in in the peripheral nervous system. I mean, it's a bit different because white matter is a lot more condensed. Um, it's sort of pushed up and, and squashed together rather than uh, distributed throughout the, the rest of the body. But it, it serves a sort of a similar function of transmitting information and, 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 and insulating to ensure that the signals can uh, be propagated in the most efficient way. If you sort of cut open the brain and look into it, what you'll actually find is that there's a small outer surface, which is only, I think, a few, millima- a few millimeters thick, which is called the, uh, the cerebral cortex, and that's where most of the cell bodies are. Uh, this is called gray matter, because that's the actual uh, bodies of the cells, uh, of the neurons. Most of the interior of the brain is comprised of what we call white matter, so it's these axons and uh, support cells. 
Of course, the interior of the brain also contains the ventricles containing cerebrospinal fluid that I talked about before, and there are also some other subcortical structures containing sort of bunches of uh, a, a nuclei, so bunches of uh, of grey matter uh, interspersed amongst the white matter. So these are the the subnuclear structures. Uh, sorry, the the subcortical nuclear structures. Uh, but most of the internal volume of the inside of the brain is actually white matter. And one particularly important uh, white matter structure is called the corpus callosum, which connects, the, which is a, a very sort of dense a bunch of fiber tracts, which connects the two hemispheres of the cerebrum. So the, the, the left half of the brain and the right half of the brain, essentially, because the brain is sort of uh, bilaterally symmetrical, or sort of the same on both sides, on, on either side. Right, so that's the white matter. Uh, the hippocampus, which means seahorse, are two structures which are located on our more or less on either side of the thalamus. And they're, they're called the seahorse because they, they kind of look like a seahorse. They sort of a, have a weird bent shape. They're, they're subcortical structures, so, so they're bunches of, uh, of nuclei. They're part of the limbic system, and they're particularly important for consolidating memory. So processing information taken in from short, uh, stored in short-term memory and storing it in long-term memory. They're also used for spatial navigation. So, But particularly people who have um, memory difficulties may have some damage to the hippocampus. That particular types of, of memory deficits, I should say. So particular, particularly um, anterograde amnesia is uh, can be caused by bilateral damage to the to the hippocampi. Bilateral meaning on both sides of the brain. So that's the hippocampus. The amygdala, which means almond, uh, again it sort of just refers to its shape, is a a small nuclei. It's, it's quite a bit smaller than the hippocampus. Um, lo- located. Sort of at the base of the, of the hippocampus, it's sort of near the, the thalamus and the end of the hippocampus. Um, again, there are two of them because there's one on either side of the brain. And they are responsible in particular for uh, s- s- some roles in memory and decision making, but particularly in emotional reactions, especially negative reactions like fear. Um, amygdala activity has been very strongly associated with, say, fear responses and other things like that. And because of the, it's also, the amygdala is also considered to be part of the limbic system. The limbic system, I should say, is, is essentially this subcortical structure, uh, sorry, this set of subcortical structures which has particularly important roles in emotion and, and uh, other things like that. Uh, but it's, it's not, yeah, it's not especially well defined, the notion of a limbic system. It's not even clear if it's really a system as such or it's just a lot of connected components. But anyway, it's a term you may, you might hear occasionally, so I just thought I'd mention it. So that's the amygdala. The basal ganglia is another part of the cerebrum. It is a group of interconnected substructures in the forebrain, the primary function of which appears to be related to the selection of action. So it sends inhibitory signals to all the different parts of the brain that generate motor behaviours, and in the right circumstances it will release that inhibition, so letting an action happen. Um, It's also thought to be related to sort of reward and punishment, so motivation as well. Action selection is sort of the the sort of takeaway you you should remember about the, the basal ganglia. Another important part of the cerebrum is called the rhinencephalon, which means nose brain. It's, it's again, a collection of structures uh, involved with olfaction. It includes the olfactory bulb and the olfactory tract and uh, some other things as well. It's, it's very important for many animals because olfaction is extremely important for a lot of animals, a lot of mammals, but it's relatively underdeveloped in primates, uh, uh, particularly humans who've evolved to rely more on vision than olfaction. When I say, by the way, that something like the basal ganglia or the rhinencephalon is a collection of structures, it really means that it's it's a complicated structure which is sort of dispersed throughout uh, various regions of the the, in, the subcortical uh, internal region of the, of the cerebrum. So it's it's hard to sort of describe exactly what it looks like or where it is. Um, it, it's it's easy to try and use diagrams if you're trying to visualize these things. Some structures, like for example the thalamus or the amygdala, are, are more re- relatively contained in single structures, whereas say the basal ganglia or the the rhinencephalon are a bit more dispersed and a bit harder to to describe or localize, at least for our purposes. 
Okay, so that's the Ryan Encephalon. The final part of the forebrain that I want to discuss is uh, the, in my view, most interesting, uh, the cerebral cortex. Cortex means bark. I think that's Latin as well. So it basically refers to the sm- the thin layer at the very outside of the brain. It's the outermost layered structure of neural tissue in humans and other mammals. It's divided... Uh, sorry, it's, it, before I talk about its divi- divisions, uh, the, the cerebral cortex plays a vital role in memory, attention, perceptual awareness, thought, language, consciousness, all of those sort of higher cognitive functions um, it is uh, occurring mostly in the cerebral cortex and also the, the associated white matter because you can't have any of this happening without the white matter transporting the signals around. The cerebral cortex is traditionally divided up into four different regions. Um, these are these are literal regions, so you can um, distinctly map them out on different regions of the brain. If you've seen sort of covered maps of the or coloured maps of the external surface of the brain, uh, this is probably what they're referring to. It's the four different lobes of the brain or regions of the brain. The occipital lobe is at the back, and that's responsible largely for vision. So V1, for example, the primary visual cortex is located there, at the very back of the head. I talked about that when I talked about uh, vision in the episodes on that. Temporal lobes are located at the temple, so sort of on the side of the head. Um, that, that's responsible for some language function, and it's also thought to play a role in audio and visual memories, and perhaps the formation of new memories and some various other things as well. The parietal lobe is sort of on the top of the head. It is responsible for uh, somatosensory perception, so the uh, perception, uh, re- receiving and processing information about perception of diff- from different parts of the body. It's also thought to play a role in um, processing visual information, visual memory. And finally, the, the largest lobe, the, the frontal lobe, also called the frontal cortex, is responsible for uh, executive function. So that's making decisions and um, sort of higher thought. And uh, it's also thought to play some role in language. The frontal lobe also includes the motor and premotor, co- the primary motor and premotor cortex. So it's responsible for uh, primary control over the different uh, the the somatic nervous system that we talked about earlier. So control of the skeletal muscles. Damage to regions of the frontal lobe, particularly the regions of the prefrontal cortex at the very front of the frontal lobe. Uh, is associated with uh, behavioural abnormalities and changes in personality and things like that. So if you've heard of Phineas Gage, for example, is a famous example of an individual who was uh, had frontal lobe damage and led to, to uh, changes in his personality and behaviours, and also difficulty in regulating his behaviour and self-control and things like that. So that's the sort of things that the frontal lobe is thought to be responsible for. Uh, there's just a couple of other points that I should make about the cerebral cortex. Um, again, if you've seen a picture of the brain or... Um, seen a diagram of it, which I'm sure everyone has, you would remember that it's it looks sort of lumpy. It's got these sort of lines going through it. It looks sort of wrinkled like a walnut. These wrinkles uh, serve a very important purpose, and they're actually referred to as um, gyri and, and sulcuses. In particular, the uh, protruding parts, that the protruding parts are called the, the, the gyri, and the sort of the valleys, or the... the, the uh, Holes, if you like, in between them are are referred to as the uh, the sulcuses. So the 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 gyri and the sulci um, c- comprise the brain. The reason that it's folded up and wrinkled in this way is so that the total surface area of the brain can be packed. Uh, the, the the total surface area of the brain can be larger, but packed within a smaller volume, because there's a trade-off essentially. The, the way that the cerebral cortex is structured is that it's layered. There's like six layers, actually, and, and there are different types of neurons in each layer. And it, so it seems to require uh, that it's structured in, this, in, this, in, this, in these layers. 
but it and you know below that as we know is the white matter and then the subcortical structures in order for the brain to grow larger and to do more and interesting to do more and interesting things uh, we need to have a larger surface area however there's a limit to that because evolutionarily speaking um, human brains got larger and larger over time as, as we evolved but there was a limit to that because the brain has to come out of the birth canal it has to fit through the mother's pelvis and that means it can't get beyond a certain size so so one way we got around this is by having babies earlier and earlier. So if you look at the gestation period for a lot of other mammals our size, it's much, much longer than for humans. Humans are born relatively underdeveloped. Like humans can't, human babies can't walk for many months until after they're born, whereas many animals can walk as soon as they're born. Well, that's one product of the fact that human babies are born very immature. And the reason that's happened is because there's been evolutionary selection in favor of premature births. Um, again, evolutionarily speaking, they're not premature for humans, but they're premature compared to other animals, um, because that's a way of ha- producing a larger brain overall, um, but keeping it small enough to, to, to fit it out uh, through the birth canal. But another way around this is instead of increasing the volume of the brain, just increase the surface area of the brain and then fold it up more. So that's where you get the gyri and the sulci as being a way of fitting more surface area into a smaller volume. You actually see, if you look at, uh, over different mammals, that um, you know things like rodents, for example, and rat brains, they're, they're pretty much completely smooth because they, there's, there hasn't been as much pressure on them to involve larger brains. If you look at, say, cat brains, they're, they're a bit more that they have some ridges, and if you look at primate and human brains, they have many, many ridges, and they're very, very folded. Um, and dolphin brains are even more uh, folded up than than the human brain is, because again, that they have they have a similar issue of um, they have a similar issue of trying to, to fit uh, more surface area into a smaller to a smaller volume. So that's the reason that that the uh, the brain is sort of wrinkled and, and folded up like that. It's because of the the the, uh, the way the nervous tissue is structured. Just a couple of final points. I want to mention lateralization. This is the notion that each hemisphere of the brain um, interacts primarily with one half of the body. It's actually crossed over so that the right half of the body is controlled by the left half of the brain and vice versa. Uh, also, there's a, a, special, a specialization uh, of each hemisphere. So most people, particularly right-handed people, uh, have language lateralized, so sort of focused on the, the left hemisphere of the brain. Uh, that means that damage to certain regions of the left hemisphere produces severe linguistic deficits in terms of understanding and production of language, whereas comparative damage to only the right side of the brain doesn't produce uh, nearly so much of a deficit. This is not the case for all people. Some people are almost completely bilateral in language, and some people are actually right lateralized, but most people are left lateralized. I don't think it's really understood why that's the case, but um, it does seem to be the case. However, you might hear sometimes people talking about left brain and right brain thinking about the left side of the brain being analytical and uh, sort of deductive and things like that, and the right side of the brain being more creative or holistic or things like that. That's total nonsense. There, there just there's no evidence for that. There is evidence for degrees of lateralization of some functions, like language, for instance, and maybe some other things. Um, certain regions, certain sometimes one hemisphere of the brain, one half of it, can be a bit more active in some tasks than another. That's true. But this differs a great deal between different people and between different tasks, and depends on exactly how you test it. It's not a particularly large effect for many phenomena. Um, it's reasonably large for language, but for other things, it's very small if you can detect it at all. And there's no evidence that it's like important in any sense. Uh, like that, there's sort of one way of thinking which is more left brain thinking, and another way of thinking that's more right brain thinking. That's just rubbish. There's no evidence of that at all. One final thing that I want to mention is the relationship between brain size and intelligence, or IQ. This has 
been something that's been studied for quite some time. In the late 19th and early 20th century, it was thought that there was a very sort of clear relationship between brain size and intelligence, and it was thought that it was thought that white people had larger brains and therefore were more intelligent or were more intelligent because they had larger brains. It was also thought that men were more intelligent because they had larger brains uh, or larger cranial, higher cranial capacity than women. Uh, it is true that men do have a slightly higher cranial capacity on average than women, although there's a great degree of variability there. I don't think that there is any overall differences in terms of uh, cranial capacity between races. Um, I'm not sure what the latest <coughs> research on that is. However, the more interesting question of how important is that in terms of intelligence is uh, much clearer. There's really no evidence that there's any significant effect of brain size uh, on intelligence. From what I could gather, there have been a number of studies which have shown a moderate correlation between brain volume and IQ, but it's not a very large correlation. So it's like 0.3 or 0.4, which, which means that... So, for example, if the correlation was 0.36, just to pick a sort of intermediate figure, that would mean that only, uh, that about 13% of the variation in IQ is explained by variation in brain size, which is really a very small amount. Um, and I don't think that that carries over between the sexes either. There's certainly no average intelligence differences between between the sexes. Um, the difference in, in cranial capacity is almost certainly just a product of slightly different, of, of, again, small average differences in um, in overall body size between the, the two sexes. So anyway, there. the bottom line is there does seem to be something to the idea that brain size and intelligence are related, but there's not that much to it. And certainly historically and even arguably today, it's uh, very much overblown. There's no very clear or concise or clear or precise relationship between the two. And it certainly doesn't mean that if you have a big head, you're intelligent or vice versa. It's If there's any relationship, it's a subtle and not that important one. All right, that brings us to the end of what I wanted to discuss today. I hope you found this episode interesting and not too difficult to follow. Uh, it, it's sort of a bit silly of me to try and explain the different regions of the brain without any visual material, but I will be posting some up on my face, on the Facebook page for the podcast, so go and check that out. Uh, just type in the Science of Everything podcast on Facebook and you should be able to find the page and give us a like. Also, feel free to email me, fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode or any one, any other episode you've listened to or any feedback you might have about the podcast in general, suggestions for future episode topics or questions you might have that you'd like to be addressed. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>